Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Fixed income has always served a defensive role within investor portfolios. Normally, when growth is down and risk assets underperform, fixed income outperforms. That's under normal circumstances though. In 2022, the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index lost 13%. Why? Introduce inflation and the higher rates employed to combat it. When this happens, risk assets and fixed income fall in lockstep. Those dark days seem to be behind us. We're now at or near a peak in interest rates. So with bond yields set to stabilise and fall, the value of fixed income assets looks poised to rebound. Today's guest on the Rules of Investing is Jay Sivapalan, Head of Australian Fixed Interest at Janus Henderson Investors. Jay manages Janus Henderson's Aussie fixed income portfolios and holds ultimate responsibility for formulating interest rate and sector strategies. In today's episode, we discuss the macro backdrop that's shaping fixed income, the best time to buy fixed income, and where Jay sees the best risk reward right now. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right, let's get into it. All right, Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David, for having me on your session. Um, Before we launch into fixed income and the way Janice Henderson uh, goes about it, I thought it'd be good if you could paint a bit of a macro uh, picture for us. Um, Where are we in the cycle and what things are defining the landscape for fixed income at the moment? Yeah, that's a really good place to start, David. Um, So there's probably two things that come to my mind that are really relevant for investors today. So the first one is really about the journey we've all been on before the GFC, during the GFC, after the GFC, in particular that 13-year period. And then, of course, we had the pandemic and and today. Um, Interest rates today, in our mind, are normal. Uh, And so that environment from the global financial crisis when, you know, the US Federal Reserve got cash rates pretty low, low and close to zero, the Europeans joined um, soon thereafter. Uh, and then there was a quantitative easing which drove the risk-free rate, which prices so many assets like share markets, property, infrastructure, and indeed fixed interest and fixed income assets. Um, that was artificially depressed for quite some time. Uh, and, and really that quantitative easing, which was um, initiated by uh, the US Fed and then later by the European Central Bank uh, during the European sovereign debt crisis. And then, of course, that further experiment with negative interest rates and cash rates in that 2016, 17, 18 period. And then, of course, we had the pandemic when everyone tried it. So the best way to think about it is um, money has been ultra cheap and readily available, in particular credit or debt, for the past 13 years. And now we're entering an environment where not only is the cost of debt much more normal, uh, but also the availability of credit is more discerning. 
So companies need to fight uh, fiercely for that scarce capital. Uh, and that has a couple of implications for investors. Um, firstly, you know, as you know, money flowed to a whole bunch of new industries and companies, and some of them are really flourished. Think of you know, the Ubers of the world and Airbnbs or in the tech sector, um, in the healthcare sector and so on. Uh, but we are also today carrying in our economies a whole bunch of zombie companies, those companies that are not making a dollar of revenue, and then probably more importantly, companies that are making revenue but not enough to pay their today's interest bill. Uh, so that's, that's one really big implication that we need to think about. The second one is a more contemporary one of where are we in the economic cycle. Uh, and it's a, it's a bit of a strange economic cycle because effectively we went into 2020 with an economic stop, not a slowdown, a stop, where we all froze, all got sent home, uh, no one turning up to offices, no one flying around countries, uh, airport shut and a whole range of things. And so we came out of it with significant amount of pent-up demand, um, partly because none of us could spend money and go out anywhere, but second part is all the government payments that occurred, you know, in Australia, job keeper, job seeker and offshore and all the furlough programs and so on. And so that's driven this period of almost nirvana of strong growth, strong labour markets. We've got 50-year low in unemployment rates, um, very good position to be in. And then the byproduct of that has been inflation and high levels of inflation. How do you expect fixed income to f- perform if we do tip into recession and you know the central banks are unable to thread the needle? Yes, if you have a look at fixed interest yields and bond yields today. Um, In the context of the last um, three years, they're very high. In the context of the last decade, it's approaching past decade highs. But if you took a one, two, 300 year um, historical background, um, it certainly is still low, not very low, but low compared to the long-term averages. Then if you roll into it today's context of higher inflation and some of the structural aspects that economies need to go through, like the big energy transition that we all need to make to electrify the world, um, some of the re-focus um, on defence spending, on national security interests, uh, on you know, resilience of economies, healthcare, uh, ageing population, etc., Um, That could all argue for slightly higher bond yields than where we are today. That said, if we think about how much and how quickly monetary policy has changed in the last 12 months, both here in Australia as well as globally, um, we do believe that policy will grip. It will slow the economy as we go through the second half of this year. Now, whether it just slows the economy to allow bond yields to effectively stay at these sort of levels or cause a recession, as you allude to. Um, if we do get into a recession, there's no doubt in our minds that the central banks will need to have an easing path. And bond markets inherently try to price all that information in very quickly, where bond yields fall and the returns of fixed interest will likely be quite strong. Now, just to put all this in context, there are generally two times when you should have quite a bit of Um, long-duration fixed interest uh, and when it really pays you. The first is early in the tightening cycle, 
just as the central bank is getting going, the bond market rushes to price all of the full tightening cycle in. Mm -hmm. And that was last year and in June. The bond market in Australia priced in a a full tightening cycle, even though the RBA was still at 0.6% in uh, cash rates and and a similar uh, sort of level in in the US. Um, So there was a lot of pricing in. Now, of course, the path there was damaging. We all know that. But then since then, fixed interest has performed very well. The second part is relatively early in the last tightening or the penultimate tightening in the cash policy because after that, at some point, the market will start looking through to the other side of the economy and an easing cycle and you'll not only get your income but also capital gains from fixed interest. So total returns has been you know, really strong. So we think that fixed interest today has not only reset but really has those defensive qualities that you need in portfolios should we enter a recession um, anytime in the next year or two. Okay, so where is the best risk-adjusted performance um, in the entire fixed income land space, landscape rather, across duration and quality? Yeah, so as you know, David, fixed interest is a, a broad church in terms of investments. You've got fixed rate bonds, floating rate bonds, senior bonds, subordinated bonds, um, government bonds, corporate bonds, securitised bonds, etc. Um, if you think about why investors employ fixed interest uh, in the context of a broader diversified portfolio, it's really to provide that portfolio insurance. Now, as the name suggests, what does insurance really entail? It means that during the good years when growth assets are performing pretty well, um, you're effectively paying a premium. What is that premium? It's the opportunity cost of investing in fixed interest, which is a lower returning asset class compared to being fully invested only in growth assets. But then when you do have these downturns, when growth assets are falling, uh, you want your fixed interest to hold its own and ideally go up in value, uh, being negatively correlated to those growth assets. So that's really the role of fixed interest. Now, there are two ways to skin the cat in terms of fixed interest. So the first one um, is when to have more duration in your portfolios. Uh, And one of the times to have those, you know, long duration in your portfolios is very early in the tightening cycle um, of a monetary policy tightening. Uh, And that was June last year when 10-year bond yields in Australia were over 4% and the Reserve Bank of Australia still had a cash rate of about 0.6%. So the market rushed very quickly to pricing in a full tightening cycle, even though it hadn't occurred yet. Uh, and that's a very safe time to add long duration to your portfolios. In a similar vein, um, once the central bank has tightened policy um, towards its peak cash rate, which is very hard to know ahead of time, um, usually early in the pause of that final tightening or the penultimate tightening, is a very good time to add long-duration fixed interest to portfolios. Um, Why is that? Because the market then, soon thereafter, starts focusing on the next cycle, and in particular the central bank cutting rates. And often the bond market will price in a full easing cycle many months before the central bank actually gets there. And of course, if you do have a recession, as you, you asked earlier, 
you will get the situation where in fixed interest investors will not only receive the coupon income and yield, but they will also get a big capital gain. And we saw this through the GFC. You know, Australian fixed interest, as measured by the Bloomberg Composite Index, delivered something like 14-odd percent when equity markets were down 35-40%. So that real um, negative correlation and compensation that you get when you um, invest in that portfolio insurance. But at other times, when you haven't got a crisis, um, spread products, uh, and what I mean by that is allocations of semi-government bonds and credit and so on, can give you a good running yield, an additional yield, to effectively reduce that cost of that insurance. So you're saying it's okay to, to chase yield a little bit um, when the market's in a healthier condition? Yeah, so I think if you're an investor um, through the full cycle, there are times to uh, pursue yield in fixed interest, and that is fine, in particular in early stages of an economic cycle, because typically you know, corporate revenues are rising for a given level of debt. And then there are other times, um, perhaps like now, and certainly it would be our view that we're in the second half of that economic cycle, where you can take a bit more of a cautious view and start building in um, you know, some embedded protections in the way you think about your fixed interest allocation. So um, that doesn't necessarily mean you go back and sit in cash or just government bonds, but certainly we can augment portfolios to effectively having a greater level of AAA and AA type credit quality exposure, still enjoying decent yields, but perhaps being much more cautious on B type debt and then in particular sub-investment grade uh, debt at this you know, point in the cycle. Why should investors um, have confidence investing in fixed income when they can get you know, 5% from their term deposits? Yeah, and I think this really goes to the heart of, you know, the quality of fixed interest. So there are times in the economic cycle where it makes sense to move down the quality spectrum to what we would call mid-grade or low-grade, um, high-yield markets and so on, where you get really decent yields. But we know that they are much more correlated to equity markets and won't withstand a crisis very well. And there are other times in the economic cycle when you really want to upgrade your fixed interest allocations. Now, in today's language, the yields on high-grade fixed, fixed interest allocations are still yielding above cash and those money market funds that you mentioned. So that is really one of the reasons for investing in uh, fixed interest products. The other reason is if we do have a crisis, you're likely to get closer to double-digit type returns and provide that true defensive upside, which you won't necessarily get out of pure cash. Now, Janice Henderson, uh, Active Managers. Um, why is active management um, the better way to go, especially at this point in the cycle? Yeah, there's a variety of reasons for why active management really suits the types of mar you know, markets that we're facing today. Um, one of them principally is the fact that we were coming off ultra-low cash rates, which has all sorts of distortions in terms of valuations, and also trying to actively manage the latter stages of an economic cycle. So let me just touch on both of those for a moment. If you look at what happened in fixed income as an asset class over the last year or two, you know, peak to trough, long-duration fixed interest drew down 
best part of 14%. Um, now, if you look at one of our funds, our Absolute Return Fund, uh, the Janice Henderson Tactical Income Fund, peak to trough drew down about 3.8%. So chalk and cheese in the way it drew down. And that's got to do with the active management and navigating that rising interest rate environment. Now, if you look at the flip side of where we're heading to today, um, if you look at benchmarks and in particular corporate benchmarks, they have an array of issuers um, who are really weighted and driven by how much they've borrowed. Uh, now, they are all going to behave quite differently as we go if we go through a recession. So as an active manager, we can augment the portfolio to much safer segments, um, you know, segments that are non-cyclical, um, you know, areas like university debt, uh, lowly geared REITs, um, you know, core social infrastructure like NBN, which you don't get in the share market, but you certainly get senior debt, uh, and, and, and toll roads, ports, airports, and so on, which are backed by hard assets, as opposed to cyclical businesses, uh, you know, like Qantas, or if you look at, um, you know, some of the um, highly geared REITs or the lower quality REITs, as an example, that are much more exposed to this part of the cycle. Um, you think with Qantas, the pent-up demand for tra air travel after the pandemic is that behind us? Yeah, certainly um, if you think about Qantas as a business, which is a wonderful business and, and one that we really like and have followed for 25 years, um, it's, it's having its moment in the sun today. Uh, you've had that pent-up demand that you just mentioned, but we've also had a significant supply issue. I mean, you know, part of their larger fleet has been sitting in a desert in California and is just finally coming on board, and of course all the delays with baggage handling and so on, etc., and that's a global phenomenon um, coming out of COVID. So they've had the maximum pricing power attached to pent-up demand. That's as good as it gets for an airline. Um, the only third element is oil prices, which is a, a key contributor. But if you fast forward two years, we do think that competition will come back into that industry uh, and we do think that prices will come down. And it may also uh, be married off with you know, once we've had our first overseas and maybe second overseas uh, holiday and we're paying higher interest rates, maybe that third overseas um, holiday um, may be a bit more challenging. I see you're also bullish on commercial real estate, um, which in some corners would be considered contrarian. What's the investment thesis there? Yeah, so clearly there's a lot of um, concern around commercial real estate globally. And I would say that a lot of it is well-founded. Uh, because there are pockets of real estate around the globe that um, today are not earning great lease income and revenue, haven't got great occupancy, whether it's offices or shopping centres or malls in the US, um, etc. But, you know, like everything, the devil's in the detail. If you look at the highest quality REITs in Australia, they are typically running 20 to 25% gearing, um, their capitalization rates, which have bounced off their lows, their peaks. But if even if you took them back to the capitalization rates that they had a decade ago when bond yields were at similar levels to today, you're talking about 10 to 15% fall in equity value. So that means all things being equal, your gearing might go from 20, 25% to 25% to 30%. So as senior debt um, holders and lenders uh, with the backing of hard assets, 
they're actually relatively safe investments from a fixed interest practitioner's perspective. And so that's why we like them. They're quite resilient. But the other one is at the very high quality end, um, whether you're talking about the Westfield shopping centres or vicinity which owns Chadston or some of these premium office buildings, they're very hard to replace assets, um, both in terms of the town planning laws. Um, you just can't rebuild one of these in the same locations again. Um, high barriers to entry and the population growth that we're enjoying will in due course ensure that they're operating you know very well so today they're a bit of an unloved sector um, we like them uh, but very much security selection is absolutely key in this area and there's probably 60 70 percent of the market that you wouldn't want to touch but there are assets that are really worthwhile investing for defensive investors the fund's also heavily weighted towards um, semis relative to treasuries um, and spreads on semis have widened recently and that's hurt the fund a little bit. Um, do you maintain conviction in, in the semis? Yes. So, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, at this point in the economic cycle, um, the places to take bigger risks are in the safer segments. And one of those areas that we really like is the state government bond market. Uh, and when Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse occurred, what we noticed and observed is that those additional yields or spreads widened in the semi-government market, which caused them to underperform. So we could have, I guess, held our position there, but what we actually did is added to our positions in our portfolios. So we use a mantra in terms, you know, in, internally within our team that let's take bigger risks in safer things rather than pursuing lots of lower quality credit and so on. And for this point in the cycle, we think that's a better way to go. All right, Jay, we always finish with three favourite questions, um, but I'm going to tweak them a little bit uh, given, given this is fixed income. What's one thing investors are getting wrong about markets today? Yeah, I think one of the things that... Um, I found through my career again and again, whether it was the 90s or 2000s or 2010s and even now, is that the market is um, very quick to latch on to a consensus idea and run with it. And of course, there'll be a variation of views. Um, very rarely does a market think about what could be a really big alternate scenario. And so today, and what has been the case in the last six to 12 months, has all been around inflation. And what are we going to do about inflation? What are we going to do about monetary policy? And whilst that's quite relevant and, and clearly the topic of the day and clearly central banks have a job to do, um, we find it easier and clearer to think through into 2024 and 25 and 26 and what type of investments do we want for our clients uh, with that longer term view and then work backwards rather than getting too consumed with the noise of today. So what is that longer-term view? Um, the longer-term view is that Australia remains uh, a very wealthy, um, well-regulated, um, strong country with robust population growth. Um, so it's got a lot of things going for it. It is a lucky country. And um, when you look at it in that context... A lot of the worries that you would typically have as investors and what you see in, in, in the financial press and so on, you tend to go away. And then you then focus on, well, what type of investments do we want who will participate in the future Australia? 
Um, our university sector is a very strong university sector. There's really good um, opportunities in university debt. Um, I spoke about the REIT sector earlier and why we like those high-quality assets because the, 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 the 25 million people plus the population growth we're going to have will need all those assets. We are going to be shopping. We are going to be using offices. We are going to need business parks. We're going to need ports. We're going to need toll roads. And so these are all really strong areas uh, that are worthwhile for defensive investors. In addition to the duration and safety that we get from the Australian government uh, who issue uh, debt and a very liquid debt market as well as state governments. Is there ever a tension between you know, trying to invest with that kind of time frame and that kind of long-term vision with reacting to you know, big moves in the market today? Yeah, so um, at the heart of our investment philosophy is that short-term factors um, have an undue influence on the pricing of long-term assets. So, you know, in normal times, what you want to be doing is investing very prudently, and that is all the things that you would be used to, you know, diversify, um, buy high quality, um, so quality before price, really focus on the quality of the assets that you're buying. Uh, and then invest with a you know decent investment time horizon. Now, during those good times, it's also a good opportunity to have some embedded um, protection in your portfolios, and we do that through um, some credit hedges and duration from time to time, and some other instruments, which just sit dormant in the bottom drawer until you get a crisis, and then they won't make your portfolios immune, but they certainly help cushion the, the pain and it allows for better conversation with clients. And then it's always important to have some powder dry because it's those dislocations that really give active managers the best opportunities to add value. And if you have a look at you know, um, the, the, the history and our behaviour through uh, the tech bubble coming out of that and welcome Enron and GFC, European sovereign debt crisis, the um, oil crisis, and then, of course, the pandemic. Um, we've had some of our best years in investment performance coming out of those crises, and it's really utilising that powder dry to really putting it to work in a swift way. Okay, question two. Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss in your career? Um, what went down and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the aspects um, that you always enjoy in markets is it teaches you humility. Um, just when you think you've figured it out, it's like a puzzle. You know that there's a lot more to go. Uh, so when I, you know, started my investing career uh, in the 90s, um, you know, I bought with my own personal money, um, you know, technology companies and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and it taught you a lot about capital preservation and really investing in quality. Um, so lost money early on in those days. Uh, and that taught me as an investor the importance of really seeking quality, um, looking for businesses uh, that are long-standing and enduring, sustainable revenues, really key. And then, of course, ensuring that regardless of how bullish you are, regardless of how strong your base case view is, Always think about the alternate views uh, because that might play out and then diversify your exposures. 
Question three, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own one type of security, um, what would it be and why? With the next five years in mind, um, I would buy very high quality senior debt of Australian REITs. Um, They are well priced. Uh, They've got the added security of hard assets backing them. And we've got some of the best operators in the country. Jay, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the Rules of Investing. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jay Zavapalan. If you did, be sure to give it a like and don't forget to subscribe to livewiremarkets.com. See you next time.